So this is the concept in seismic tomography. So you're technically seeing the organs of the earth. I mean, like, yes. how, how cool is that? The science basement! Hello and welcome. You're listening to the Science Basement podcast, a podcast for people who want to learn more about all things science. I'm your host, Eleana. And I'll be your co-host, Tomas. And today... We are diving into seismic imaging with Christina Tarsitalidou, a PhD student at the Institute of Seismology at the University of Helsinki here in Finland. Christina, welcome. How are you today? Hi, guys. Uh, first of all, uh, thank you very much for the invitation. And I'm, very f- I'm fine. Thank you, Eliane. And you? I'm also very well. Thank you. Thank you. A bit <laughs> tired but uh, very excited about discussing with you for seismic, on seismic imaging. Very nice. I was just going to ask, what is really seismic imaging? I, um, I'm aware of, like, in general, seismology, because I come from a uh, seismic country uh, myself, but I, um, I'm kind of curious what, what it is, because apart from actually having earthquakes, I, we know relatively little about it. Okay, so, well, seismic imaging is not closely or, let's say, directly connected to the seismicity or, like, the occurrence of an earthquake. It is just mapping the, the layers, the earth structure, with uh, seismic velocities. And why, why do we need to do that? So what do we learn uh, by mapping the structure of the earth with seismic imaging? Okay, so uh, we can with seismic imaging we can have information or on uh, the the internal structure of our planet, and uh, for example, we can uh, have information about the contrast material that we have on uh, the folds or uh, the internal of volcanoes, or even deeper the crust and the mantle. And then I think we we have a a, a very burning question. So uh, I don't know if you, Thomas, want to go and, and and ask, or should I, I do it? But uh, <laughs> go ahead, go ahead. So why seismic imaging in Finland? Well, actually, I'm not doing uh, seismic imaging in Finland. I am doing it in the US. And uh, right now, this is like the first application of uh, the method that we are uh, studying. And uh, maybe the next is going to be the Alps. So actually, it's not in Finland. And Okay, but- so this is working from home taken to a, a whole new level, I guess. <laughs> <laughs> working from home, working on a, on a desert series from a completely different continent as well. Uh, and I, why are we interested then in the seismic... Is it tomography, actually? Is it a correct word to say? Well, yes, uh, seismic tomography is indeed a method to, again, to image the, the structure of the Earth. And uh, yeah, it is the very general field of my research interest. It is in the ambient noise tomography. So yes, you're right. And why a group in Finland is interested about the seismic tomo- tomography, I'm sorry, in, in the US? So in the US, it is very interesting to have information on the internal structure because uh, mostly for the Western part, because we have the San Andreas Fault. And then at the west coast, west south, and then there is the mantle upwelling, which I think needs to be studied. That's for the US. 
And then uh, regarding the Alps, it is very interesting because uh, we have at the north of Italy, there is this big chain, mountainous chain. We have from the northern and east part, a sedimentary basin. Then we also have the northern part of Italy and right beneath the Alps, another sedimentary basin, which is the coming from the Po Plain and then also the Apennine. So we have all of those contrast in structure. And it's very nice, it's very interesting to have information on that. Mm. And this contrast in structure comes because at these locations you have uh, layers uh, built and then underneath a new layer is built because they are pushing up, right? Because it's like the places where one tectonic plate is diving below another. Yes, well, in Italy, for example, you don't have that, uh, you don't have such a a big uh, one plate but it's more of a system of small faults, fault okay. system otherwise. Uh, but for example, you are at the five kilometer distance, like in depth, and uh, you can see that, that the sedimentary basin has low velocity. And then the Alps, because it is a, a mountain, yes, you have higher velocities and the same goes for the Apennines. And I was just curious, so you mentioned all these uh, sedimentary structures in Italy, we know about these things, but what do you what do you want to learn uh, about these these regions? Is it just more detail on the on the structure, or will learning about this give us a more a deeper insight into something else? Or like the material, for example, that they yeah, are, they yeah, are but... made of. Yes. Uh, so when you are interpreting your, you actually get um, at the beginning first uh, phase velocity maps. And then by continuing a little bit more your processing, you get S-wave velocity maps. So um, can, can you explain a bit more what that yes, is? Yes, of course. Okay. <laughs> yeah. So our observable, the ambient noise, is basically Rayleigh waves. Uh, Rayleigh waves are surface waves. They propagate in the surface. But Rayleigh waves, I would actually say that personally, that it's an interference phenomenon between the body waves. For example, body waves are the P waves and the S waves. And so by analyzing the Rayleigh waves, you can have also information on the S waves. So from someone who is not directly from science and hasn't heard the terms P waves and S waves, can you give an example on how you would like uh, help someone visualize in their mind uh, what yes. a P wave and an S wave is? Okay, so when an earthquake occurs, we first have the P waves because, and, and the name actually is the primary waves, and next they follow the S waves, secondary waves. Okay, so it's not it's not necessarily to do with the frequency and amplitude, but it's more... Yes, it's like the differences between the direction of propagation and their direction of propagation together with the particle motion. Right, because I can jump in and say, I remember when I was studying physics, because uh, my major is physics, I had a course in uh, Earth's science. And there, I remember we were discussing about uh, vertical oscillation of the yes. of the ground when you have an earthquake or like horizontal oscillation of the ground and i remember that p and s waves were a little bit associated with that yes okay so we have all these kind of waves propagating in the medium and uh, what can they tell us about it well 
uh, they give information on the material. So going back, I think, to Thomas' question, when it comes to the interpretation of the data together with, a, let's say, maybe geological knowledge or with other information that uh, we take from other kinds of seismological studies, we have information about the material. I don't know, Thomas, you wanted to ask another question because I have something that just came in, in my mind. No, no, go ahead, go ahead. So, Christina, we discussed about what is seismic imaging and what information we can get from it, but how do exactly we do it? So there are different methods of doing that. And I would like to talk about what the method that I am working, I am applying actually in my PhD. So as I said, the general topic is in ambient noise tomography. So we are using continuous records from the seismic uh, stations, from actually uh, big networks, large networks. And the first step uh, is that we apply the appropriate processing we want to omit earthquake signals, for example. We also choose the frequency range that we want to work with because in our case, the frequency range also has an interpretation in depth, like uh, with a depth range that we would like to work with. But let me just go back a little bit to the ambient noise data. So the ambient noise data, they are constructed by surface waves, the Rayleigh waves, as I said before. And surface waves are dispersive. Dispersive means that the velocity is frequency dependent. And this is uh, goes back to the depth range that with different frequencies, we actually image different depths. Okay. And, and how far deep can we look in? So now, because the surface waves, they propagate on the surface, up to now, we have not been able to map with these kind of waves more than more or less 100 kilometer in depth. But we actually hope that with the method that we are using, we will be able to go a little bit deeper than that. So this is also, let's say, a novelty. Oh, that's really cool. I was I was actually wondering, since you mentioned uh, all these surface waves and uh, and everything, can they be disturbed by human activity? I, I know that, for example, quite a few experiments need to be isolated from cars and trains and, well, the Alps and the San Andreas Fault are not really known for being human inactive, shall we say? Yes, that's actually a really nice question. So for the high frequencies, the ambient noise is actually human noise. It actually comes from industries or traffic. And that um, creates like the surface waves you're talking about? Or well, it is just noise? Well, actually, it creates this wave field which propagates in the surface, yes. So then human activity is very important for your study. You kind of need it there. No, because I'm looking at lower frequencies, so I don't have this kind of noise, this kind of sources. Okay, and what kind of sources do you do you use then? Is it just normal internal activity? Is it more, like for example, I know that really low earthquakes, say two in Richter scale or something like that, are not perceptible to humans. And very do, common. Do so the ambient noise that I am investigating and studying, it actually, its source comes from the interaction between the atmosphere and the ocean. For example, different storms might create these ocean gravity waves, which then propagate into the Earth's surface. And also, for example, because you mentioned the earthquakes, well, as I said in my processing, I am 
omitting the earthquakes, but I am still keeping the coda waves. Coda waves is actually what remains from the earthquakes, as its name suggests, actually. It's the, the coda. It's like the last part really? of an earthquake. Uh, okay. Ah, okay. Hearing, hear, I can, yeah, I can hearing, see the analogy. I had, not, yeah. I had not thought of that. Yeah. Me neither. Like The first time you said coda, I was like getting ready to ask, where does that name come yes. from? Yeah, yeah. But now that or, you explain, yeah. yeah. Um, for people that might not know, like, the coda is, is what if you're playing an instrument it's uh usually like a, a part at the end of the of the song and you have to like yeah like you have to be aware away. of when to move sorry is it like a fade away no 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 it's a section of the song so when you're playing you repeat the song basically and instead of going to one end of the music sheet you skip to another section which is the actual ending so you can repeat over and over the chorus for example and then skip to coda which is skip to the end of the song okay um, yes because when you have an earthquake so as i said before first you you have the primary waves the p waves then you have the s waves and then you have surface waves, you might see them in your seismogram, sometimes when the earthquake is close by the station, you also get these coda waves, which is like the very last part, let's say, somehow of your earthquake, I guess. Mm, okay, that's really cool. Yeah, mm. yeah, indeed. You, you should have just named all your, your waves after music, uh, music terminology, maybe. <laughs> Like the yes. EDS wave should be the senior waves or something like that. <laughs> so now let's say that you collected all that material and you have that information. What do you use to extract it? So you as a researcher, what is exactly your, your role in this project? Do you set up uh, seismic stations? Do you analyze uh, the data later on? Do you do both? And if yes, how? So in general, a seismologist would do both. Go and install the stations and maintain the network. And then also process and analyze his or her own data. But for me, because uh, I'm using, as I said, the transportable RA network uh, in the US, no. Uh, those stations were installed like starting from 2004 and west-south, like in California. Then every two years, they were being picked up and moved towards east to another location. I think they, st uh, they stopped installing stations in, uh, if I'm not mistaken, like 2014 maybe, or maybe 2014, 2015. Okay, so it's yes. been a while. Yes. So you just take the data from that project like that has already yes. been collected there is, um, there is a repository online and i download them from there so you're kind of a, like a big data analyst oh well yeah sort of i guess and i would assume you use some kind of computer technology to to go through all the data yes i am using universities cluster because otherwise it would have been impossible to do this big scale of computations like, I think, like, at the very beginning of my PhD, I just uh, calculated how much time it would have taken me to do the calculation, for example, with a normal computer or something like that. And it was, like, only to download the data. I think it was, like, uh, three years, time of my PhD or something. Okay, three years on a normal computer just to download the data. <laughs> yes. Said. Oh, wow. Yeah. That, that's a long time. Halfway through, we say, your disk is full. <laughs> <laughs> Yeah, right. apart from that, yes. <laughs> that's true, that's true. What have you learned so far from this data? And 
how can we use the, that information that you have collected? Well, at this point, because now, uh, like in January, I will completely say my first year of PhD. At this point, I am just finished with the processing like one month ago. And now I am doing that further analysis that will provide me uh, the surface wave velocities. So I cannot really say right now, like I don't have any kind of seismic velocities to interpret yet. I'm not at this uh, point. It will be the next one, the next step. Okay. 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 This might sound, sound silly, but you were mentioning before all these like stations that were installed in, in different parts of the US and Italy. What do they look like? Are you just like planting microphones on the floor? Um, do you, how does it work? Like, what do they look like? To be honest, I'm not really sure how the transportable are, like what kind of instruments they were using. But usually a seismic instrument, it has the sensor, which records the movement, let's say. And then there is also, another part which is the battery because this instrument needs to very simply said to take energy from somewhere and uh, then there is also a third part where it's the disk where the data are being recorded and saved stored and is someone going and collecting those disks every now and then to retrieve the data okay so it's not that then it's wired to a network that transfers immediately the data to a a general repository yes and it's both for record for to empty the disk and also maybe to change the battery Mm. and yes and and when do you set up those stations Do you place them on the ground or do you have to dig and put them in? Well, I guess you can do both. So you can either have, for example, the geophones where they don't have to be buried on the ground. And then you also have the, I think they are called borehole stations, which are the ones that you dig a hole and you install the instrument in there. Yeah. Actually, I have a funny story. I don't know if I should share it or not um, for the podcast, but hey-ho, I'm going to go ahead and say Mm -hmm. it. So when I came to Finland for my PhD, I was at the University of Oulu, part of the Sodankula Observatory. And there was a seismology group in the unit. And one day, one of the postdocs said, I have to go and check uh, a station because it wasn't responding or something like that. Uh, Would you want to come with me? And it was like in the middle of the winter, minus uh, 10, 15 degrees. Uh, There was already about, uh, I don't know, half a meter of snow around. And we had to walk in a field trying to find the station, which was actually buried in. Uh, They Mm -hmm. had uh, made a hole in the ground and there was like a concrete container to make sure that there will not be too many vibrations I think so the sensor was floating inside that container but the funny part of the story is not that the funny part of the story is that I managed to almost bury myself in the snow and couldn't come out very easily. I had my (laughs) camera on the one hand and my backpack uh, like holding on it so that it won't because my back was uh, almost touching the snow and my friend was already at the station doing work and I was yelling from behind, can you come and pull me out of the snow? So that's why I was asking. I was familiar (laughs) with like uh, (laughs) the stations that are buried although my memory is more of me being buried uh, in the snow. So imagine how difficult this can be for someone who needs to maintain a network. Uh, Like you first have to dig the snow in order to find your instrument and then you do what you have to do. I don't know, change your battery or uh, download the data, but it can be pretty hard. It's not an easy job. 
Yeah, and I imagine like you will need to put stations in all sorts of locations. And so you will have to do a bit of uh, hiking, carrying equipment around, digging yes. to place it in. Yes, indeed. It's, I think it's not very, it's not easy. But that makes it exciting. uh, Well, yes, it is. But you also have other kinds of tasks to do, (laughs) I I guess, as a seismologist. It's exciting, but... (laughs) Thomas, you were laughing. I was... No, no, I... I don't know why. I mean, it's probably because of the time time of year uh, for the listeners were close to to Christmas. But I was just kind of imagining these people going on a sleigh, changing all the batteries and picking up the data and trying to do it in in a single day. It's like, yeah, Santa has difficult. (laughs) Yeah, yeah, you need the snowshoes. But I think like they set up stations, or at least I remember in the summer. I don't know if, Christina, that's in general a most favorable season for setting up a station. But then occasionally... In the winter, they had to go and check if the station wasn't uh, sending any data to the network, what's going on. Mm-hmm. And in that case, yeah, you have to go with snowshoes here in Finland. Probably the station is in the middle of Nova because Finland is not very densely populated, but also because they wanted to have stations away from people. Uh, it was it was very interesting to, to see that experience. And to, to me, it was fascinating. So I, I expect it's somewhat the same for you too. Yeah, it is. And I guess it also depends in which country you live. For as you said, maybe in Finland, it's easier to install the stations uh, during summer. But also, it depends also what you want to record, what kind of, um, if you are doing an experiment and you are creating uh, artificial explosions. For example, if you have explosions, maybe you prefer to do that during summer because you know you can have your stations easily installed. So the ground is not iced. You know, it's not, yes, iced. You can say, right? Yeah, fro- frozen, yeah. Frozen. Yeah. Don't ask me, I'm a tropical boy. <laughs> <laughs> well, we, we are Mediterranean, so not very familiar with the frozen ground. But I but think both seasons. words is... Uh? But you have seasons. Yes. Yeah, we do have seasons, yes. We don't have seasons. That's what I mean. <laughs> right, right. I'm always forgetting. Just for the for the audience, because they don't know. Uh, Thomas, can you say where you're from? <laughs> yeah, I'm uh, I'm from Costa Rica. So it's a very tropical place. We're yeah, barely above the equator. In Central America, so they're quite... I mean, we're literally made out of seismic activity. Yeah. And so that's kind of why. I'm subscribed to the OBSICORI, which is the basically the National Seismological Organization Institute. Okay. Um, and uh, I get spammed all the time because there are like two or three Richter scales uh, earthquakes. And it's just like, oh, okay. And every once in a while, there's a bigger one, like six or seven. Yeah. And all the, all the WhatsApp groups light up with all the memes about, oh, there was an earthquake, which is very funny. Do you also have like an application which gives you earthquake alerts? No, no, I'm in, there's a Facebook page that I've liked and follow. So oh, okay. it just... And they, they, they give like alerts there or it's just for uh, making memes like... about the earthquakes? Uh, it, I mean, not the official, not, yeah, not the course. official institute, but yeah, no, like everyone, everyone does. And like, it's really funny. Um, yeah. they're, they're the classical ones. There was once in 2009, there was a really big earthquake. And there was this guy from the US that was being interviewed on national TV during the earthquake. The footage of it still goes around on group, like uh, of groups because the reaction was really, really funny. It was like it was like it, it was a relatively strong one, but it was also quite long. So there was enough time for people to react 
in very silly ways um so the guy was just like for yeah. saying everyone calm down calm down and then started cursing there, I... there's the remix version which is also really good mm. um <laughs> So they made a song out of it. A song? Okay, okay. Yeah, That's interesting. Uh, it was really funny. But I mean, like, I have a memory from a very long earthquake because me and Christina, okay, Christina, you can go ahead and talk about where we come from and uh, what's the situation there. And then I can share the story I, I have in mind. Well, we come from Greece, both of us. And in Greece, many earthquakes occur, mostly, I think, in the Aegean area and the Ionio. Yeah. So, yes. It's in yes. the sea. It's, it's, uh, because we are standing right on top of the uh, where the African plate dives under the Eurasian plate, right? Yes. Yeah. And we get exactly. a lot of earthquakes from that. And we had the biggest earthquake in the recent history back in 1999, wasn't it, Christina? The big one in Athens. Yes, I think it was then. Yeah, I remember. I, I don't remember it myself. And I'm also, I don't come from Athens. I'm from the northern part of Greece. Yeah, no, I, I'm, I'm from a, a small town near Athens called Rafina and uh, we were very near the heart of the earthquake so we felt it and it's exactly what Tomas described it it lasted long it lasted long enough for me and my brother to have a conversation of uh, me telling him stop kicking me and him t- saying I'm not kicking you it's an earthquake and both together started yelling to wake up our father who was having his midday siesta so it, it was a pretty long earthquake and it's it's very interesting to see the reaction also I, I want to see now the video Tomas is mentioning where they made a song I'll, out of that I'll send it I'll send it to you and we can maybe hint at it in the show notes maybe <laughs> yeah yeah I mean if it's if it's not banned from anything we can uh, share it, no, no, uh, it was, uh, there's slight ish cursing but it's not uh, okay yeah, it's okay. in, it's it's in Spanish. <laughs> so oh, it's in um, Spanish. It's in we Spanish. Okay. Yeah, yeah. yeah like a, we, we wouldn't understand much. But anyway, we are drifting. We are drifting, and I think uh, <laughs> I had a, a question for you, Christina, because I'm a little bit yes. curious. Of course, Earth's crust consists of a lot of different materials, and mm. some of them are particularly interesting because they are of very high value. So, do you anticipate that uh, in your study you will find that there are these like high value materials uh, in the areas you're investigating? Well, I don't think so because I am looking a little bit deeper. I think if I understood correctly by what you mean, these uh, high value materials, they are more in the um, superficial layers. Okay. Okay. Yes. And it is also of more industrial interest, Mm -hmm. I would say. Mm -hmm. Do you expect to find something new? If you're looking deeper in? Well, for example, for the US, I think it was just to have information again on the uh, mantle upwelling. I don't, uh, we don't really know exactly what we are going to find or what we are going to see. This, I think, if I'm not mistaken, this area uh, has been uh, mostly investigated by P-wave tomography, which would be exactly seismic tomography, but with waves from earthquakes and not ambient noise, as what we are doing. Sorry, guys, it's just that I am not at that step at the PhD yet, so I cannot say at the moment yeah, like what the data that I will have. Yes. Oh, sorry, go on. It's go not on. about revealing. I actually don't know what... We we don't know what we will find out and we are just not at that part yet. So then we can we can leave it aside and, and uh, 
Yeah. yeah, yeah. I mean, no, no. I just said that that I'm sorry. I cannot give you more information on that. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. That's we, that's the reason why. We can just keep the mystery. It's okay. And uh, yes, this is still ongoing. It's an ongoing work. So at the moment, we don't have that much of information to talk about what we will map. So we should stay tuned to find out more and maybe have you back one day to ask about the results. What were the final findings? Yes, at the end of the PhD, maybe. And it might be a silly question, but how do you analyze the data? Because I'm aware, like I'm... I'm used to basic statistics, but as someone from life sciences, do you, like there are some parts regarding numbers that are a bit beyond us kind of thing. Well, it's not a silly question at all. I think like the the whole ambient noise tomography business, let's say, it's based on the on the method which is uh, cross correlating the continuous records. So in this uh, method, we are actually assuming when we have two stations, and we assuming that the station, let's call it the station number one, is the virtual source, and the station number two is the receiver, and then the other way around. From cross correlating the signal recorded at those two stations, we it has been proven theoretically that we can obtain the Green's function. The Green's function is the seismic impulse response of the Earth. Uh, now, what does that mean? That the Earth acts as a filter somehow. So we have an input signal, and then the station records the output signal. And this is how we retrieve information regarding the Earth, by having this output signal, which is the seismogram. And, and I guess you develop some specific uh, programming routine uh, to, to do that analysis. You wouldn't go through all that data, of yes. course, by yourself. So yes. what kind of routines do you use? You mean once you, record, you, you have your recordings from getting uh, yeah. the data that you interpret? So the first step is the processing. So in the processing, first of all, because your seismograms uh, come from an instrument, you want to remove that input of the instrument. So this is very important. And that's like they, calibrating the data. Yeah, in a sense. In Yes, the instrument itself gives, feeds something to the to the seismogram and we don't want that. Right, okay. so you need to remove that, right. Exactly. Then uh, with the ambient noise data, uh, we want to remove the earthquake signals, the high amplitude signals. So the processing is mainly for that. And also we are choosing, based on our application and what we want to do, we choose the frequencies with which we want to work. Then comes the cross correlations where we actually, from that continuous recording from the ambient noise data, we reveal the surface waves, the Rayleigh waves, and also the love waves, but it is easier to work with with the first. And from that point and on, uh, usually what is being done once you have the, they create with the Rayleigh wave velocities, they create maps. So for each point on a map. Is it like vertical map? like a depth maps or is it like a map like a, a, the earth's uh, surface this is a map the Rayleigh wave maps are maps in period oh they okay. are connected with a specific period or frequency okay okay now i got then it. but but what you said eliana it's actually really nice because then you have the phase velocity maps which is connected with the Rayleigh waves, and then you can invert them because this is your actual observable in order to obtain the S-wave velocity maps. And now the S-wave velocity maps are for different depths. 
Okay, so you first have those Rayleigh waves and then you convert that information to the S wave, which tells you what depth you are looking at. Exactly, yes. Okay, okay, that's interesting. Just for the audience, because not everyone is in science and not everyone might be aware, you deal with a lot of data to my understanding. So if you were to write this data in a book with pen and paper, how many books, like how many rooms will you fill with them? So how many data do you have? So I am working with the years starting 2004 up to 2012. And for each year, I have more or less 400 stations. That's a lot. So, yes. Yes, it is. So Um, I I imagine like you can fill up... How many gigabytes? So, uh, well, this depends on your processing. So right now, the like my initial data set, it's one tera. But I have actually, yes, I have uh, with my processing, I have reduced the initial raw database coming, let's say, from somewhere, from a server somewhere in the U.S., Okay, so okay. you see, Thomas, you thought about a gigabyte, but we are talking about a tera, which is yes, a yeah, lot yeah, it's more. The, yeah, it's yeah, a thousand times more. More, yeah, that's, exactly. Wow. Oh, that's 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 a lot of information to process. Yeah, it's funny how to see how how different we we think. Like it's uh, you you said how many books would you would you use up for that? I was like, no, no, no. What we need is how many of these old um, iPods, like a uh, memory stick for example yeah yeah but, but but i was thinking of these like there were these old ipods that would take i think it was like 250 gigabytes which were like the all the rage how will you ever fill up uh so this amount with it? yeah <laughs> right now we know <laughs> yeah with seismic data <laughs> okay so bring all your old ipods to christina she can fill them up with that seismic data that's to be cool fair, you could listen to that so <laughs> yeah you said listen to that Thomas and and that gave me like a flash moment can we convert those seismic information into sound and listen to it well I think that for example the earthquake when an earthquake occurs there is this sound coming like a very blurry maybe sound like I I don't know if um, you have ever experienced this I think so I think dogs can hear it so yes uh, not also humans no it's Sometimes. like a, a, a rattling. Is the is it the yeah. correct word? Like a like a sound? No, I I know what you mean. I mean, like I have yes. Okay, dur- it. okay, yeah. During the earthquake, mm. yeah, definitely. But there's but an during the earthquake in the, in the air that dogs. Mm. Oh, Thomas, you mean uh, what dogs sense way before? So like before we actually hear as humans the earthquakes, the the dogs has sensed a sound in the air. Yeah. Yeah. Okay, okay. I haven't heard of that, but I thought it was just very low frequencies. But okay, l- let's see, Christina. So what about this, the sound? Actually, this is, now I don't know it exactly, but some part, I think some part of the of the wave field is actually propagating in the air and we can actually hear that. Okay, that's cool. So yes, if you're in a high seismicity country or a country with a high seismicity, I'm sorry, then uh, keep keep your ears open in the air like open, focus yes. yeah maybe you you hear that that sound of a, of an earthquake coming sounds very cool another thing i wanted to ask mm-hmm. because tomas mentioned earlier that he's from the life sciences of course he's not very familiar with your field also i am not because i'm from space physics and it's 
a little bit different like what I, I do. But I, I would think that medical tomography is not that far dissimilar from seismic tomography, right? Yes, actually the concept is the same. So when you go, for example, to the doctor to have, I think it's called CT scan, Right, yeah. Mm -hmm. The doctor can see the organs without an actual surgery. So this is the concept in seismic tomography. So you're technically seeing the organs, and I put that in quotes, of the earth. How cool is exactly. that? I mean, like, yes. how, how cool is that? Yes. And this can be, for for example, a sedimentary basin or the roots of the of a mountain or mantle upwelling or... or heights yes. below a volcano, right? Yes. Well, that's cool. Cool. I always liked volcanoes. I would like to be able to see beneath the surface, let's say, there. And in general, waves, uh, they travel fast to cold material and slow to, to hot material. For example, when you have the hot rocks rising oh, from volcanoes. Wow. Makes sense. Also, I, I assume that at a volcano, the material is not just hotter, it's also different structure and like softer. Yes, the magma. Yeah, like even the magma when it, it uh, cools up. It doesn't form a very solid rock, so it's a much softer material, I imagine, than the base of a mountain. Oh, yes, yes, very different material. Right. Because I think, like, what comes out from the volcano is actually material located in the mantle. So it's coming mm -hmm. from far deeper. And it... Far deeper, yeah, from the asthenosphere. Right, so the volcano, it's like a point of exit to the surface. It's like a magma yes, says, exactly. hello, I've come to see the world. <laughs> No, let's run away from it. That is so interesting. But unfortunately, we are running out of time. So that brings us to the end of this podcast episode. But before you leave, Tomas, what's the fun fact for today's episode? So this is something that came into my attention like just as this week because I had no clue this was an actual thing. So do you know how most plants reproduce? Most plants reproduce. Okay, I have something in mind, but Christina, what do you think? Well, I think it's with the bees, right? And the air. Yeah, that's what I have in mind. The I, I bees say, travel. Yes. Yeah. So, exactly. So pollination. Mm, basically okay. it's the classical story of the flowers and the bees bees will take the pollen from one plant and move it to the other and that's how plants reproduce most at plants at least mo most angiosperms yeah at least that's um, what they taught us at school so what's what's the ter <laughs> the twist there but not all plants use bees like yes insects are the most common animal to pollinate butterflies as well there are also mammals like bats all right uh, even small rats and mice and that sort of thing but i had no clue that there are actually only two flowers that we know of at the moment that are mostly pollinated using reptiles. What? Reptiles? Okay, how does that work? So, as I said, there are these two species. One is called Trochetia, the other one is Guterrea. And these plants will produce nectar, as flowers do. And these small lizards will go and take the nectar and pollen will get attached to their noses. And they will take this pollen to the next flower. This is not the only cool thing. One of the two flowers, the most recently discovered that was, it was discovered a long time ago, but it was recently learned that it was mainly pollinated by lizards. It's actually green in color. So it's native to South Africa and it's a really small flower. It is green. I'll, I'll send you a picture. I guess in, in a moment but it's just yeah. I find it crazy yeah yeah, send the picture and we can maybe show it when we advertise the episode. That would be cool. But I think 
trying to be a scientist, the flower is green to yes. attract the lizard. Usually it is true that flowers will use light to attract their pollinators. So for example, flowers, like say normal day-to-day -day flowers will actually use ultraviolet light to attract bees and butterflies. This one, I am not too sure if we know yet why it's green. I would assume that it, it may have to do, but it might, might also be that the lizard uses uh, other of its senses, so smell or, or something else to, to find it. I just find it fascinating that no indeed it is and i opened the image and i saw the flower and i, I mean like that's a very weird looking flower it, it wouldn't look like flower to me i would say that's salad because <laughs> i mean yeah, it's, it's, it's like a... green green stuff <laughs> yeah for for the listeners it's a really small light green flower with small yellow dots, dots yeah at the at the bottom of the callus just to wrap up the fun fact the name of this flower the common name is the hidden flower. The hidden? Yeah. Is it hidden from our eyes? Where is it hidden from? Like, from whom is it hidden from? N no, like, I, I don't know. That's a... That's a common name, so it's kind of the the name that the the flower has. I don't know why it was given that name. It's like it's a common name, so it's not a scientific name. So I guess it's a name that the locals or the people who who discovered the uh, the flower gave it to them. But I guess it's like it's a really small, low-bearing flower, and I, I do think that it's lovely the way that it looks. So yeah, no, no, uh, of course it's lovely. It's just it's just different. Yeah, at exactly. least the first image I saw, and the little lizard to me. Looked Look like a baby crocodile. I had to say <laughs> that. I'm sorry. <laughs> anyway, thank you. That was very cool. I don't know if Tomas, you want to add something more to that? No, no, no. That's all that I had for today. <laughs> okay. I hope our audience enjoyed it as much as we did. And I want to thank you very much, Christina, for joining us today. And to you, our listeners, for uh, listening to our episode. And stay tuned for the next. Thank you. Goodbye. Thank you. Bye. The Science If you liked this episode, give it a thumbs up, rate us on the podcasting app of your choice, and don't forget to share it with your friends. This podcast was produced by The Science Basement, a science communication organization based in Helsinki, Finland. Interested in getting involved or being interviewed? Get in touch at podcast at thesciencebasement.org.